0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Good morning, good evening, good night. NBN, Entrepreneurship and Leadership. Personally, I'm fascinated by the story. Trust is an underrated weapon in the
0: business landscape. I'm a really, really strong believer in learning by doing. What's the definition of success? He's trying to come up with an answer to the question. But go ahead, Richard.
1: Uh, you could be right, but you're wrong. <laughs> uh, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, whatever time of the day or night it is. Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel listeners on the NBN. Today I'm with my co host, Kimon Pontikidis, and our guest, Soren Stammer, who's the CEO and co founder of Core Media. Who I had the privilege of meeting at the TED conference back in April 2022. Uh, sorry, I could try to interview you. Uh, sorry, interview introduce you based on reading your LinkedIn profile, but I think it's much better to flip it back to you and say, please just introduce yourselves to our listeners in a you know a minute or so, explaining you know who you are and what you do.
2: Richard, thank you. Thanks for having me. Actually, it was great to meet you at TED. Um, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur. I founded a company as a student. Um, 26 years ago and uh, built that up um, it was at the university with two of my computer science professors so I built the company as a CEO and co-founder for the first uh, 13 years then interestingly I kind of like I had promised myself to take a year off travel around the world and um, see what I want to do next if I want to go back I did that actually a little later than one year later than planned and ended up in the Silicon Valley for six and a half years and then actually did something interesting. I went back to my company and took over the CEO role again for the second stint. Um, and that's what I do now. So I'm the CEO of Core Media, a software company providing um, content management and experience management for global brands. So quite a few of the brands that we know use our technology to yeah, create beautiful experiences and all the different touch points on the mobile phones, uh, online stores and the like.
1: And, and in terms of numbers, can you give a sense of the scale, the scale of the business? Are you in the billions, the hundreds of millions, the tens of millions? Like, um, <laughs> I, I, I think I asked you that question at TED and you, you hesitated for a moment. You said, Well, I'm going to tell you. Don't share anything you don't want to share. But it, I think it's really helpful for our listeners to get a sense of, of what, what, what those numbers might be.
2: Yeah, so we are not in the billions, not in the hundreds of millions. We are on track, um, you know, we are between 20 and 30 million and uh, growing nicely, like 20% a year. So we, we aim to basically get to 50 million in the, in the near future.
1: That's great. Well, well thank you. And um, in terms of your story, we're, we're really interested in what leads people to being entrepreneurs. So the fact you founded your company when you were a student is, uh, some of our guests have done that, but not all of them. Did you know even before you went to university that you were going to be an entrepreneur? Was it obvious to you, like from as long as you can remember that you had to have your own business, or was it a kind of yeah. uh, that you, you stumbled it's,
2: into? I, I thought about that, well, right? and I think um, it has actually been my upbringing. I grew up on a farm, on a family farm, with uh, three three siblings. My grandparents were there, and the family farm is in in the hands of the family since I think um, fourteen hundred something. Like for a long, long time, right? Basically, and um, I basically, when I was eight, I think I wanted to be a farmer. I want to take over that farm. But uh, then, when I was ten or something, I realized I have an older brother, and he basically has the first rights of refusing That
0: was going to be my first question: whether (laughs) you were the oldest son, whether you were the oldest son.
2: No, I wasn't, right? And then uh, in Europe, you have basically different rules. You had actually areas in Germany where they split up the farm. They basically made us make you know, smaller farms for the kids. And,
0: okay.
2: you know, I think in Bavaria that was the, the case. So they have smaller and smaller pieces. Then they have areas where the youngest son got the farm. Ah. Uh, also interesting. And then most areas where the, the oldest. Um, over the years, they changed it. Now it's the oldest child. But you also have to learn farming to basically have the rights to get the farm, and um, so I realized at that point in time. Well, my brother wants to do this, and um, and I'm also lazy, so just getting up in the morning and making the cows at seven thirty or at, at five thirty is not my my you know strongest kind of a desire. So I um, realized, yeah, I have to build my own thing, and um, I liked computers at that point in time, computers, and I was kind of like looking at. I liked physics so i thought about studying and um, went to this um, you know there's there's really uh, like a office in germany where you can go to get advice on your kind of like potential studies or whatever you want to do and they told me okay you're good at math and science so you know we, how about become a mathematician then you can calculate the the death tables for insurance companies, and so yeah, maybe not. Oh, I like de- math, but I don't. I don't an like actuary. That. <laughs> so then I, I was into physics. I like physics, especially kind of like theoretical uh, physics. Um, I went to actually Daisy, which is a, a lab here in Hamburg with a particle accelerator, and um, for some reason I kind of said, well, no, maybe maybe that's also not it, and um, I looked at uh, computer science. However. At the end, I said, well, I will study business administration and computer science as a mix because I I really had the desire to build my own business. And uh, that was early on the case. I think when I was 17, 18, I I realized that. I also basically financed (laughs) my studies being computer scientist. I basically worked as a freelancer. I programmed, I solved IT problems, and and I loved computers. So in a way, that was kind of like my my first stint. and buy okay, so you had
0: a little, because a little, that's what sort of what we're looking, you had a little bit of a, um, let's say, consulting, call it a consulting, like you were freelancing, you were looking for jobs. Um, and right. then was there any other kind of entrepreneurial thing, even like, did you sell anything? Did you, did you take the, the, the farm goods to the, to the market and sell them yeah. yourself and make it? <laughs> were there any,
2: was there any? No, I basically, more like being part of the family business is the other part, right? Because like when okay. you have this like old farm thing, my mother and my father, they work together on the farm. My my grandpa was there, my brother at some point. Of, so you have this big table in the morning and like lunch and in the evening, and you sit there and basically you're always talking about business. It's kind of like, you know, and and you learn quite a few lessons, I think, that are important as an entrepreneur. For example, you know, as a farmer, you know, like, first you have to seed something and you have to basically wait. You have to have patience because it's not ready the next day. So it takes time. Second thing is also like my father was really good at that. Um, So you want to harvest something and you have a rain shower while you have to live with that. It doesn't make any anything better when you now scream and so fit. You just have to basically <laughs> roll with it. And so yeah, that's the new reality. We adjust. So the agility of being a farmer is, is much yes. bigger than people give her. So you have to roll with the, what nature gives you. And and um, so the, quite a few of these things I learned at uh, at, I, at the I, farm. Um, I think that's really agility.
0: valuable. Yeah. And, and actually, we've had Richard, a couple of farmers. It's a funny that we've seems like we have. There is a common thread I've seen and I never would have expected with yeah. farming and business action, but it makes it makes a lot of sense, actually. And I like what you said about the agility and rolling, rolling with the punches as things happen, because you have to do that. That's like that's business.
1: Yeah, I mean, that is also, business, right? like, the, you know, it's basic core value added, isn't it? I mean, you've got the miracle of the hen it eats sort of complete, <laughs> yeah. eats crap and produces eggs every day and and you can then, you can then <laughs> or an egg every day, and then you can eat it at the end. And it's kind of marvelous how nature creates value. Obviously, there's a lot of fine tuning, yeah. uh, and so uh, it's a really interesting. And uh, you've said it more explicitly than our other guests. But a lot of the other two farmers, as a farmer's daughter and a farmer's son, very recently were talking about the culture of hard work and you know, you know right. sort of the, the ethic. <laughs> and presumably, your parents work pretty hard.
2: <laughs> Exactly. And it also, it was fun, right? I enjoyed it. I enjoyed working the farm. I enjoyed actually, for example, that they gave me the freedom to drive this tractor when I was what, 14 for a whole day <laughs> on this gigantic machine or the, the combine. Right? I, I really kind of like had fun doing that. And they taught me early on, like, hey, we trust you handling you know, expensive, dangerous things. We teach you, mm-hmm. but also we trust you. And it really kind of like helped me to say I, I didn't ask myself, oh, am I allowed to be an entrepreneur with 23? I was just doing it. Right? And, and I didn't basically enter the, the room of, of potential clients questioning that. It was for me, it was very obvious. No, I do this, and it's no question. And, so and, are... and the other thing, I think collaboration, about It's like it's a family business, so everyone has to help. And some of these values that you have there, I, I used also to start the company. Um there's some drawbacks to that because the company is not a family at the end. Um, So they come to that conclusion at some point in time as well. But I think it, it, uh, there is some, some parts of um, you know, how you treat people. That is something you can take away from, you know, working as a family appreciating people. and, And also everyone has to chip in and, and, you know, solve conflicts and, talk about stuff
0: Well, i would actually add the trust thing as well i think that if you can if you were granted trust and then you can trust that's a yeah. major yeah. major anti-bottleneck yeah. for the entrepreneur because it frees you exactly. up if you're going to be able yeah. to trust people basically yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah
2: and you get what you expect right if yeah. you expect kind of like something you can trust people they notice and they do a lot to fulfill that trust if you don't yeah. trust them They'd also notice and will fulfill that expectation yes.
1: too. Right? So <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's a self-healing prophecy. And coming when you were doing your computer consulting or programming work as a teenager, do you remember how you got the your first clients? Like, or did you hear of someone else getting well-paid work as a computer consultant? Because quite often, there's that those first times someone pays you to do something. You know, it's it's obviously yeah. selling labor and advice isn't quite the same as entrepreneurship as we define it, but it's an entrepreneurial step to figure out. Finding a client. Yeah. So, do you remember your first ever client for consulting services when some paid you for doing programming?
2: Yeah. So, if we, we should take out the the stuff you do as a as a, a child, right? Basically, working uh, at the I, I actually work at the, the bank to carry around their kind of like uh, papers like in the morning. But when we take that off, um, the entry was through my actually one of my uh, professors. Uh, he basically he gave lectures on um, statistics and. Um, uh, you know, he called call it ADV, which is basically like computer science for business people. Like, you know, and um, so he gave that lecture for um, the business administration students and he basically discovered me and made me his uh, assistant. So I basically gave lectures um, and he also had this business, this consulting business and hired me to basically through him uh, work for some, some other companies. Mm-hmm. So it was really kind of like he was in, the, in a way my first First client, but then um, also things like when AOL, for example, you remember those guys when they came to Europe, they needed uh, some help, and uh, I knew some some guys at the university, so they they uh, sent me there to to fix stuff. So in a way, it came through my network. Um, yeah, but. Um, it was a good time, actually. It was kind of like early on. It was partly hardware. It was partly basically setting up networks. Uh, it was partly programming. It was hacking some, finding some solution mm-hmm. to some, some crazy problem. Like, yep. Um, what happened then was that this first professor at the computer science, uh, at the business administration department, introduced me to his friend at the computer science department. And that was life-changing because this uh, professor, Professor Schmidt, um, He ran a computer science department uh, in Hamburg that was extraordinary. So normally when you go to university, I wasn't that impressed with uh, the the research that happened there. But this was different. It was a tight-knit team of students and uh, PhD students who sat together in a room at their Sun workstations. And they're working on the same basic research, uh, like a programming language. And um, it was before Java came out. It was uh, called Tycoon, Typed Communicating Objects in Open Environments. And it was actually really trailblaze. It was kind of like a, a programming language, object-oriented with a built-in um, type checker and, and compiler and everything. But it also had persistency as a concept that was built into the language. So everything you touched with the language was persistent. So not just the data and the code, it was even the data, the code, in, in execution. So the threads, the running programs, everything was persistent. So that this means that when you shut off the computer and you restart it, it basically it, the programs are really right where they were, and they are moving further. But even better, you could throw threads into a database and get them out the next day. But even better, the best thing we did was was 1995. We sent a running program from a Windows machine with Windows open, everything you could tell the program, hey, please move to the Macintosh next to you. And then the Windows disappeared and the program with all the bindings, all the data, everything, moved over to the Mac and the Windows appeared again in the same state. Wow. had the same program. That's crazy. Going from Windows machines to Macs Mm. to Linux, to Solaris and back. Right. We had migrating threats in 1995. And we were, crazy. we were, hey, look guys, look, look what's what's possible, right? This is the future. Like, you know, you send your program to wherever it should go and it comes back and, and all that. Um, it was amazing technology, amazing research behind it. And um we showed it to some, some companies like SAP, you might have heard of. Um, and they said, Yeah, great, we don't need that. <laughs> so we had then the Audacity to say, well, if you don't need it, then we will prove you. We will basically start just start a company. And,
1: uh, <laughs> and that is such a good an thing. Sorry, so I just want to jump yeah. in there, but, you know, the role of rejection when you think you've got something really great and someone says, no, it's yeah. be so motivating. And this is like, I'm gonna show these idiots that they're wrong, you know? Because you knew you right. knew that you knew that it was well, I and mean, I don't want to say SAP, you know, SAP is way more successful than me and it's it's a really dumb thing to criticize world leading companies. But yeah. sometimes yeah. the person who said no is a major driver of motivation, right? And
2: it was 1990, it was actually the Christmas party 1995, um, where we would get together at a bar and we talk about, hey, well, you should start a company. It was more like a silly idea. And uh, in April next year, we started the company. And um, actually, we kind of like got the first client was the German press agency, so it's like AP in Germany. And um, also a funny story because like the there was some contact to the um, the chief of the of the editorial team. Um, about his I think mushroom collection he's a mushroom collection he wanted to put it <laughs> on the internet and the department that we were at the, at the university they were the first ones to run web servers so for the city of Hamburg, for the university. so we basically were very close to to CERN and the and the you know worldwide web kind of like developments. so we basically were asked about this if we could help. Before I could even go there to talk to them, they realized, hmm, this internet thing is bigger, so we should potentially do something here and have a multimedia news service. And so the conversation I had with them is like, yeah, let's in the next few months build a multimedia news service, refactoring the data that they send out anyway. The images and the, and the real-time news and create um a, you know a multimedia service from it sending over satellite to different boxes and machines that we send somewhere so that the different newspapers in germany could integrate it into their websites and uh, in their own designs and stuff. so we built this service um and we made the stupid mistake to have the launch date being at the end of the year like new year's eve which is a, a shitty deadline for any project. <laughs> so I, I never made that mistake again. So, um, but we launched it, and it became a success. Actually, it, it's, uh, so it's turned So the, the, the core
0: technology is- that you, the core, the core technology that you built, um, you know, that you were that you proposed to SAP. Is there a connection then with that? And then, and then, you, then you met the guys. You went to the bar. You said, "Look, yeah. we're getting rejected. Yeah. These guys don't know what they're talking about. We can do this." But then, and then you get managed to get this uh, German AP or whatever, the, the, the press agency. What, what, is there a yes. connection between the, the next that you did or did you actually yeah. then build something else for them? I, I'm trying to catch that. Uh,
2: yeah, so the connection was basically with that uh, programming language and the frameworks that we had, we were pretty fast at forcing, building um, you know, um, platforms for data gathering, for transformation of data, like parsers to to find the meaning in data and structures and build a website or web services with that. So it was okay. a nice framework to do these things before you had other things to do that. And so we used kind of the technology to now just, you know, build this, uh, solve this problem, which was certainly solvable in, in any other technology as well. But uh, we knew our tool, we were good with it. We were fast. Right. So it was um, <clears throat> just a, a good way of starting this problem. And, um, The second customer was um the extra springer the biggest uh, european publisher they had a different problem they you know had all these um um, ads all these kind of like um are they called the um classified ads you know cars and and uh, apartments and the like and they wanted to put them online but as with dpa with the german press agency it was everything on some old host system so it was hard to get the data out of this system and then do something with it and we did there actually we built this uh, system that analyzed the data and found out all the what is the phone number what in you know um is a bmw it's a car okay the, the the 316 we knew kind of like it's a model we knew all mm-hmm. the zip codes we knew all the descriptions of different things we knew what is close to the university so basically we had a system to take that unstructured data and turn it into a nice database to research, like find your kind of your ads. And uh, we did that for them and it was a nice business, but um, <laughs> our proposal was guys, you know, you get the data on the Thursday. Thursday, everything is done that is printed on Saturday. Why don't you basically create the database, put it out there, but you take away the phone numbers and the, you know, contact information. So, and then you you tell people, you know what, we can even send you an email when your favorite thing is there. When your Ferrari below ten thousand euros is available, then on oh, Thursday that we was send cutting edge you an email. At that time, mm. <laughs> right? That was all in there. We but then we told them, guys, and then you know, what do you. You make them pay. You basically when people want to have access to that data on Thursday, you paid twenty deutschmark mark, and then on Friday ten, and on and on, on Saturday afternoon it's free because then the newspaper yeah. is done. And they said, yeah, nice idea. You know what? We just wait until Saturday afternoon when the newspapers. <laughs> so we're like, "No. So when you think about it, it was, it was 1996, and we already had a solution for them to really start making people pay. I was looking for an apartment in Hamburg, and, and, and certainly, if you get a head start of, of two days, you would pay exactly. for that phone number a lot, actually. And you know, when you think back, they lost that market, right? Um, so later on, they didn't do that, and they had fun for a while. But then, you know, all these other people came building just pure play web services uh, and having yeah. that there. And so they basically lost that. They could have done something very different. Uh, but, you know, as, as usual, when you have a big business that is highly profitable, you know, you don't look at the future that much. You look at protecting mm. the yeah. stuff that you have. Mm. So what happened then was interesting. We, we kind of like learned a lot from these two companies. But we also realized Java came out, Java 0.7, I think. And we said, Okay. Now we have like 20 something students and people here working on the base technology and basically doing a bootstrap of our own language to make it even better. And then we have two people, three people working on customer projects to pay the bill. So we were profitable, but it was obvious to us that, you know, we will not win against sun with, with Java. So after a year, we killed our child. We killed our, our
0: language.
2: But it was interesting right? because like the, the founding of the company was to prove that this is working. And we were not sure what happens when we say, hey, it's dead now. We basically make it open source and we move on. But within two weeks, nobody you know, was missing anything. We, we had learned a lot about multimedia, a lot about content, a lot about you know, how you have to solve that problem correctly. And I'm not kind of like managing HTML pages, but you know, really deeply content as an asset. And we used that knowledge to build a new product um and that's what we basically rely on today still so the yeah. core ideas that we learned there are still yeah. true are still driving driving our business
0: that's a lesson that i've learned as well i mean um you if you find yourself spending a lot of resources on something like when, when you said it I, I knew where you were going because you said you had a couple of people working on client projects and the the rest of the team Working on this backend thing that you can replace. It's like why build? You know, uh, my business partner says why build Excel <laughs> if Excel exists? Why build Excel? Use Excel and use the resources to build. To build, you know, and that's basically what yeah. you. Did. And look, you, you made that decision, and then you built the core technology that you said. That you're basically still running on today, or that's yeah. the key piece of your business, which is just the, the a lot of people really believe it or like, not. Don't problem. do that. Yeah. I mean, they don't do it. They can't, right? kill, they yeah. can't kill They can't kill. They can't kill the child.
2: They can't. You, do you it. love your stuff too much, right? you basically are. You know, <laughs> yes, yeah, really exactly. Yeah. It was a it was a good experience because like it also at that point in time there was so much more, right? The, the company and the cohesion and the the way we work together. We had amazing talent because of this connection to the university. We always basically kept the the greatest kind of like engineers early on we had that as a working student and then they basically directly, uh, moved over to the company so we we really had this kind of like amazing talent pool and amazing projects right basically at that point in time you know internet was was pretty new still but everyone needed it so we we won amazing projects and at some point time we won the um the winter olympics in vancouver so that like for for two, wow. two weeks it was the biggest size in the world to to, to you know with the a lot of track traffic because everyone wanted to see the scores so it was really kind of like some fun things that we did over the year <laughs> that uh kept people together but yeah one thing that that happened also was um we did that as a bootstrap we didn't put much money in so it was really financed by the four founders and i was a student so i didn't have much money so it was really you know little money a bank loan and that's it so we we kind of like mm-hmm. we're so naive we bought at The beginning because we had this ambition to build a big company, we bought use them, tables. You might use them as a, as a premium brand for tables. Right? When you go to a dentist, <laughs> an expensive dentist, they have that kind of stuff. And we bought workstations from Sun, uh, you know, well, we got a good deal there because of the connection. But we really cannot spend a lot of money on stuff you would not really
1: so, stuff. so, so you're, you're, you're sharing something super important a lot of entrepreneurs yes. like, <laughs> they become wise over time but you were spending money on stuff that clients didn't care about at all because you wanted to yeah. to do with ego and status i guess you you wanted to feel like you yeah it was a, 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 a cool yeah company. it was
2: it was part of the, the, the you know the interest of one of the founders was no we don't want to be a small thing like uh, we want to do something big and therefore let's just. the funny part is now we are just moving offices and we don't need these tables anymore but Actually, we get the money back for these first tables. They are so valuable 20 <laughs> years later. So they are really very long-term. They are a good yeah. investment. Short-term, you're short on cash. It's a stupid
0: Yeah. Yeah. Richard and thing- I
2: had...
0: Yeah. Sorry. Please. No, no, because it reminded me of a story. Richard and I had a business uh, Had a business together, and the CEO went to buy didn't he buy a big sign? Like a huge, like we were like, why? Like gigantic, like on the top of a building, like it was going to be the biggest company in the world. It was <laughs> expensive. And I think when the thing finally, it didn't collapse completely, but we, when we moved or something like that, I think we said, why don't we give him the sign <laughs> and take it home or something <laughs> like that? Because uh, this is an example of this, like spending money in the not yeah. optimal you know but, not for but, things yeah, that matter yeah. actually, but you know?
1: this, this is so, Soren, This is a perfect segue into your sort of personal motivation so just listening to you it's clear now that you know the what you were doing for clients the exciting technical side of things you know even you, you sort of light up as you talk yeah. about it and yeah. did you motivate and but on the other hand you, there was this ego stuff of like we want to be big or some of your partners participants wanted to be big can you like reflect on how your motivations evolved over time because you've had these different chapters and we don't have to go through your life totally chronologically but on the motivation you ran it for quite a while. You knew you wanted to do that. And how far was it money? How far was it significance? And did that evolve as you started becoming, let's say, not super rich, but like comfortable? Did your motivations change about what was important to you? Yeah.
2: So when I started the company, it was kind of like this proof point But hey, we have great technology, great people, like, let's just do it. But I was young. I realized I could go now to you know, one of the big um, consultancy companies. And they interviewed me and they said, no, that's not what I want. Like, now I'm busy free and I can do whatever. So why would I waste my kind of like uh, great years? On the other hand, you are naive, right? You have no clue. You have no experience. So that can in one way be a benefit. And the benefit was if you are young and naive, you have one thing for you. And that is, you have to learn fast and you don't have to unlearn things. Because some of the truth of the past are potentially not true anymore, and that was, I think, deeply instilled in this company. Being a spinoff of the university, learning and growing and reflecting and finding better abstractions uh, was always part of the of the DNA of the company. And I enjoy that. I enjoy enjoy learning. I enjoy kind of like exploring new things. I enjoy also enabling others to learn. So it's it's big part of the of my motivation is building um, a team and an organization that is able to grow and evolve and get better and also helping others in that organization or uh, that we work with to grow as well. So that's, I think, also a long-term a very good thing because it helps you to survive. So if you have an organization that is able to learn faster than others, it also something that has a higher likelihood of being around when things are changing quickly. And we had that quite a few times, right? like 2,000 was crazy and uh, and then quite a few times afterwards as well where you had suddenly big shifts in, in society um today yeah you you make good money with that um in our industry right everyone basically really gets gets a good salary and you're able to, to do that and growing a business also helps me to have like financial independence it's it's not unimportant. I think it was very important when I started. When I went to university, um, I had a conversation. Someone remembered the first day at the university, a friend of mine, and said when I was asked, okay, why did you do this? I said, I want to be rich and independent or something. So I really had this mm-hmm. idea of uh, financial independence as something that was important to me. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, today I have achieved a lot of that. Right. So in a way, um, now it's really kind of like still... You know what can we do to make the the place a better place to work for example like we don't believe in this making people the same we much more see that you know you have talents and ideally you have an organization then that can organize around the talents and make the talents grow enable them to basically even change and, and use different roles so that's a different organization than what you might find in, in some of the old school uh, you know setups where you strict description of a of a role and you have to fulfill this and everything else is out of bounds here so we do the opposite um we explored early on i think in 2003 4 5 we explored um ways to get rid of hierarchies so now you would call it like agile agile leadership we did that early on without kind of that background just from our observation that hmm, you know we're getting more stiff the world is getting more networked and faster so how can we change that how can we benefit from from more network thinking than uh, hierarchy thinking so in a way this this exploring better ways and 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 learning is something that is amazing and the other <laughs> when thing you, when, what i sorry yeah
0: no, i'm just yeah. wondering when you're talking about the talent um do you have because that's something that i've had like uh issues with uh in running businesses is because i i actually strongly believe that everybody isn't equal. And this and that's where and, and, and avoiding the situation. and I wonder if you did that one thing is obviously giving people the freedom uh, without hierarchy to do stuff. But the other thing that's interesting is money. Because I always felt strongly that I'm going to pay the people like everybody isn't. It's not it can't be flat and it doesn't matter what your job title is. It matters what value you're generating. And we're going to keep paying more and more to the people that are generating the most value. Did that did you have that reflection? Because that's always and I think coming I imagine coming from the university. I don't know whether this is true or not. But if if that's in your DNA, that there would be a level of, oh, we must be equal. And like because that's a very market concept that two people yeah, are yeah. in the same position and one is making double the other. Is that even like a yeah. possibility or is that something that you yeah. even, like, didn't go there? It's
2: over the years. Or, or maybe you we, can't we talk about
0: more.
2: it. <laughs> I don't know. No, no. We, over the years, we got more of that. But um, yeah. from our perspective, a lot of the employees, the technical employees, for example, told us, for example, at some point in time, we gave them stock options. So, hey, you know, there's nothing you have to do. Here's some shares yeah. that basically gets you money if we have an at some point, There were employees, there was one I remember, he told me, no, I don't want those. I said, no, hey, there's no drawback here. It's just an upside. <laughs> it's just basically, you know, your <laughs> ticket to get some. He said, there is a downside. And the downside for him is if he has those, he has to worry about them. They can go up and down and that will be stress for him. And he doesn't want that stress. He refused to take the stock options. And so there is... Part of the, the group who want, want much more of more stability and you know, predictability and fairness than maximizing their income. We have quite a few of yeah. those actually. Uh, and, but then you yeah, have the other dimension where it's a, people say, hey, I, I basically do great things and I want to also be appreciated for that. Um, so, it's it's not always the same that people would do it through money. Actually, we have different groups and the, the organizations. Some for some the money part is not the the key. They expect other recommend, recognition. Um, mm. But yeah, it is the topic. Actually, there uh, I read about this um, company in in Brazil. They went so far to say not just the hierarchy is something that is uh, you know voted for. You you select your leaders, even the salary, and the idea there is everyone can set their own salary, and the team. Decides if you if you are affordable for that salary or not. So basically, you say I I need that five hundred thousand, and they say Oh yeah, you are worth five hundred thousand, but we can't afford you. Please, you know, like move on. And that's maybe not a not a not a bad thing to do. Um, We haven't gotten that that far though, like uh, with the salary part there's still more experimentation yeah. to be done. I, I, would I, I
1: think the book's called Maverick. I can't remember who, who wrote it, but I read that book about 25 years ago. I thought, how the hell did they run that company? Because it's like, yeah, it's, easy, yeah, yeah. it's easy, easy to send a podcast. It's another thing to implement something like that. But I've been always fascinated with the
0: concept of just publicly, and I've never, uh, you know, I floated it, and of course, nobody, everybody thought I was crazy. But I, I did, I've always been fascinated with the idea of oh, public, so like, okay, you can't choose your own salary, but... Everybody knows what everybody makes and it's not secret and yeah. hidden because I think that creates a lot of, and just to be clear as I wasn't saying that the employees were motivated by or trying to get more money. I was trying to say as a company, we should be proactively rewarding. Not everybody's equal and some people need to be rewarded, like just should, but by, by my my yeah. version of fairness, not everybody gets the same. My version of fairness is the value creators are getting more,
2: right. are getting
0: right. more based.
2: But then you have have some questions, right? What happens if someone kind of like for a time period is a big value creator, but then longer term, that part is maybe not a bottleneck anymore and is not as important. Can, you can't really easily push the the salary down. Yeah, bonus, it's bonus, bonuses,
1: painful. bonuses, bonuses, yeah. bonuses rather than monthly yeah, increases. Exactly. Of it. Um, but yeah. Sharon so, so, can you talk a bit about the way? You, was there anything about managing people? Obviously, managing highly intelligent, um, talented people is a particular type of challenge. And you're just talking to you, I get the impression you you, you understand that people yeah. are different. You you're a good communicator. Um, were there any things that you learned about managing people? You said you were a bit naive at the start. Were there things that like, took you yeah. by surprise, the lessons you'd share with other people listening about, you know, you've managed people, yeah. you stopped, yeah. you started again. What, what, what did you get wrong early on? And what, what, what advice would you give now to people who have to manage really talented, smart people?
2: Yeah. It was, it was a great start. Right? Basically, you have a small team. Everyone fits in one room and you have breakfast together Monday morning. And everyone knows what's up, and everyone obviously that's enough. What that's enough management. So we started like that, and high trust. We knew each other from the university, and people knew each other. It was a great time, and then you realize with twenty five people, at some point that breaks. Right, this this model of everyone is here, like with with light touch. You have more structures that you need, and more communication that you need. So we went through that, and then at some point in time we had to, well, we had to. We had the perception that we had to increase more structure and choose more structure. And the only thing I knew was from the university, okay, now you have departments. You need departments, and, so, and that was a mistake. So looking back, I think I, I would have, you know, <laughs> had a better chance to say, well, no, we organize differently. We, we organize around pods or around kind of like units of self-sufficiency, but we introduced departments and departments mm-hmm. I, i'd say is it's not the best idea when you structure an organization um so in a way that was that was a mistake just because we didn't know better the other thing that i think was interesting was we started out with this feeling of family like and i hired even a lot of friends like friends of university basically they just end up in the in the company sometimes i hired them or some other people hired them but right? even like close friends and that was great because we grew. 2000 happened and we grew with more than 100%. 2001, 130. 2002, we grew like crazy, 150%. So we had a great time, even though the world around us was falling apart. There were so many startups failing and, and friends kind of like being laid off. And we felt, well, we are different. But I also felt like, ah, oh, this is not good. This kind of like feeling of we are invincible is not a good feeling because mm. it will hit us at some point in time. And, um, but yeah, we, we basically, it hit us in 2003. So we came from three years, like 120, 100, 150% growth rate. And we made the budget for 2003 and said, well, let's, let's plan with something like 100. Like it's more like conservative, like the low point of the last three years. And we had a hiring plan and we had big clients. So we had the Dodge Telecom, Vodafone. We had basically big projects. And then what happened was at the beginning of the year, Vodafone and Telecom both decided oh, we overspent for the, the 3D licenses. They spent, three, I think, 100 billion in Germany, the, the operators. And they said, we want to cut costs. I think the deal was like 16 billion in 16 months. So what happened was our biggest projects were suddenly on hold and not happening. And we were coming like this and we suddenly went down like significantly and we had to find a way through that. Um, so what happened then was all the wrong things. Right? I, uh, we needed to uh, lay off some people. And we tried to minimize that. We tried to basically lay off as, as few as possible. But I had to lay off some of my friends. And, and it was painful. Some of the friendships, you know, even though everyone knew why and that it was the right thing to do, it was hard for those friendships. Um, some survived, fortunately. But we also made the mistake that we didn't you know, lay off more than we really, really needed in that moment. So the, some investors told us, "Hey guys, you know, lay off twice as many as you need because then you're you're good. You're done with that, and you basically." And we didn't. So what happened was a few months later, we had to do another round playoff.
0: And that's and the worst. You, then you create, oh, it's man, not the, safe here. The first yeah. one was bad,
2: right? The first <laughs> one was, okay, we're not invincible and it sucked. But yes. the second one is then, okay, so how many more of these do we have? And it's my job statement. Exactly. Basically, it's like pulling the rug under the feet. Nobody is suddenly safe, Feels yeah. safe anymore. It's kills, it kills, it's
0: a killer. It takes ah, years to ah, rebuild it. I know exactly, I did the same thing. I know exactly, you have to rebuild it, though. it's really. <laughs> really yeah it takes it's, time
2: <laughs> you know when you're successful things are easy people follow you and you can change direction quickly when things are like that falling apart and and you are missing your you know you don't you know fulfilling your your statements from last week suddenly people don't trust anything you say so it's harder to then move in the right direction um at the end of the year we, we grew with 60 percent. so we still grew but it was was a really tough year to to get through that. Um, we survived it and and it made us at the end stronger. We also kind of like had to reflect on this family idea because in a, in a family you don't lay off people right here you yeah. had to lay off people and and it is. I think it's honest also to tell people why well, we 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 enjoy being together, we work together and we even have a lot of people coming back later on for the second stint, but we're not really a family, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's not the same as a family because we can't guarantee that we can always hide. Right. Um, um, the, the thing that went well though, was two years earlier. So we did the first financing round in April, 2000. It was perfect. It was you know the, the Nasdaq and every stock market was close yeah. to peak. I think it peaked <clears> in <throat> March. April was still feeling good. People expected it to go through. So we we signed a deal with an investor. It was thirty times revenue of the next next fiscal year. <laughs> no strings attached. There was no. It was just our projection times thirty, and oh. they got ten percent of the shares, and we got the money. They didn't get any liquidation preferences. Anything. So there was nothing like that. It was just one rule: as long as they have seven and a half percent, they have one uh, chair at the board in the board on the board. And right? so that was it—like one position on the board. How
0: much did they? How much did they? What kind of a stake did they take?
1: <clears throat>
2: it was ten percent they got. Um, yeah, ten percent was the what the you know the percentage of the, the so just, just doing the math
1: most... possibly for like thirty or forty million euros or something like that, right? Just I'm do, I'm reverse yeah. engineering on the numbers, so that that's a lot. Yeah, of... you're
2: good, you're good. Right. Yeah, yeah. So and there was kind of like we said we expected now due diligence and the negotiation of the contract, and they didn't. They just basically never came up with the contract. Okay, then fine. We go to the notary and we sign this and it's all good. So we were a little greedy though. Like we expected a year later to be much bigger and get much more money for for less shares. And so the second round was scheduled for uh, September, 2001. And you might remember that was not a good time to get money out. No, of it was 9-11. Um, so it was 9-11. 9-11. But even before 9-11, it was kind of like all the startups were dying. Like banks shut down yeah. their finances. Yeah, after so dot-com. It was, it was it
0: dot-com was, and 9-11, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And then 9 we were negotiating at 9 And it was kind of like, fortunately, we had this nice growth rate and we closed the deal in October um, 21, uh, 2001. And uh, we survived that. But, in between, we had this really tough time because suddenly our bank, um, you know, we had a loan with them, at least a, a guaranteed line that we paid for, and we wanted to use it. And they said, ah, actually, you don't have that line. And we like, man, like you should be on our side. You are our bank. We You, you made us pay for this line that we have, the availability yeah. to use it. And now we want to use it. You tell us we don't have it. That's close to fraud. Right? Mm-hmm. And you sell me yeah. something that is not really there. Like, yeah yeah so that was that was really frustrating. And through that process with the we needed cash, we needed the financing. Um, we communicated very openly with our team because, as you mentioned earlier, they are brilliant people. they are smart. they they don't you you don't fool those people. they they are yeah. amazing employees and they are amazing people. So it's not that you basically really would even get away with fooling them, but even the culture would not allow that. Um so we were very open and transparent. However, there is this thing that you have to think about as a leader. You can um you know, like share too much with people that say, Hey, I can't handle this. So while it's my job to solve some problems, there were also people who said, Hey, you know, I trust you. I don't really want to have that on my plate. I don't want to. Be concerned about all these things so as a leader you have to be you know able to you know handle some of that and keep some stuff away from everybody so that not everybody has to be concerned about it. but we were very transparent about the numbers and are still are today to, up to today and i think it helps it helps to kind of like have people trust you to communicate the right things when things are good but also communicate straight when things are not as good so that helped us also, I think, through the second phase there, through the layoffs and the double layoff. Mm-hmm. That people really, you know, felt some trust into our transparency, that we don't, not fooling them. Right? We we made mistakes, yeah. okay. But it's not that we basically fooled them. And
0: you take responsibility. I don't know. It just this yeah. all reminds me of my experience as well. I also just directly took responsibility. I said it's my fault. I made bad decisions. Like the, the, you know, I could yeah. have done a different decision. I made the decision like this. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, you know, I've I, obviously I did some things right in the past. I made this one wrong, and this is well, what I did. This is why exactly. it's, it's going to be different. Owning it and yeah, yeah owning and that's, it exactly.
2: Oh man, it's it, 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 that's really a huge difference because like indeed you need people to trust you right? when you run a company yeah. and they, that trust is not there, how we actually get you to, to, for them to basically stay on board or kind of like, you know, trust you to go through a tough time and, and not jump ship in the, in the first moment because then you are really yeah. screwed. So yeah, we, we had that for us. Um And um, also with, in, in Corona times, for example, a similar thing, like this open communication and the trust and also the thoughtfulness. Um, it, it makes a difference so it helped me a lot in my in my life that I kind of like had that experience at home talking openly about stuff and doing that at the company as well
1: mm. I just want to draw attention like a lot of people when they think of being a business person man or woman being successful you, they've got this vision of like the, the cool front page of a business magazine and here you know yeah. talking about humans reflecting on you know I remember very clearly you know a lot of business people reflect on the really nasty stuff i'm firing your friends why do you want to be a business owner well i'm going to have to fire my friends or fire people who i mistakenly hired. and these are tough things and also the bank pulling the credit line i mean you know i obviously there are some good bankers out there but i don't know a single business person who hasn't had run ins with their bank which you know yeah yeah yeah. you know it's 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 tough right and so um but when you uh, when you reflect on those sort of like the tough experiences, do you think it changed? I mean, do you feel like you had to become a tougher person? I mean, obviously your childhood wasn't easy, but your parents were sort of solvent. You, you weren't hungry. It was tough, but you weren't hungry. Yeah. But do you feel that like the experience changed you, Soren? Like, are you a different person than you were? You know, when you were a young a young man, like in a either a good way or a bad way. I mean, no, I mean, I don't I hope to, so, right. we don't want, yeah. we don't want to sugarcoat it. You know? <clears throat>
2: Yeah, I hope there's, there's some maturity that comes with the years. But um, th- I think this ability to handle pressure, I have for a long time. So th- that was something I, I came with, right? So basically, um, you know, I, I know it from, from risk-taking when I was young. So I, I kind of like had always a very good sense of risk. So for example, my, my elder brother, he got a motorbike and basically crashed quite a few bones. I got a motorbike and i avoided that right so i, I find the right balance of, of you know where i, I want to go and um today as well i i noticed with my wife and, and some other conversations that um i'm pretty good at handling pressure at handling kind of like uh you know also risk um and people reflect that to me some people say okay they they don't notice but um i always are i try to always open up also, like in between and Corona times, there were some tough moments, I think 2001, the first half of the year, oh, they didn't feel good. It was another year of Corona, then the Northern German winter, like vitamin D deficiency. So I I didn't feel good at all. And we had some changes in the team. So, um, and I shared that as well. Um, You know, a friend of mine was dying. And and so it's kind of like that part is also uh, something that I shared but yeah, I think this over the years, what I did was I worked with a coach. I worked with a group of entrepreneurs where we meet up for three and a half days. And it's interesting because what it is, is you meet other people that are also working on their, on their personality and you work together for three and a half days. And what you do is you prepare, you execute and you, and, you know, reflect on um, reflection of your person like uh, you talk openly about how do the other people perceive you and while doing that in a self-organized way. So there's no leader. There's nobody telling you what to do. So the group has to come together and work together and do this three day and a half days program. And it is interesting because it's kind of like holding a mirror up and you see yourself and the reflection of the other people, right? like how they perceive you when you enter the room, when you, when you negotiate with them, yes. when you fight, when you... So everything, right? like the the subconscious. and And it helped me a lot to, you know, like an onion, to unpeel the onion and to learn something about myself. Like the assumptions that you have that you don't even know about but that oh. are shaping your behavior.
1: I think you have to give us some data. Was there like something that was like annoying or upsetting or surprising that you were convinced you were like this, and in fact there was a big gap between your? Or, or is, is there anything you can share? You don't have to. It's pretty personal, but, but it's...
2: yeah. So, so on many things. I think the one thing that um, I was not kind of like speaking clearly when I was not yet convinced of something. So, like. Mumbling when something kind of like try to, you know, not make a clear statement, and that's not helpful. I, I got that reflected, or mm-hmm. it was something also this this thing of um, the balance of, you know, when do I basically go into a conflict and resolve that conflict, and when do I basically let it be for a while and observe it, and then also the intensity. So I at some point in time I was reflected this more like. The guy with a huge kind of like sword and getting in there and and like, bomb Nobody is standing anymore. So I got reflected. For example, my I'm close to two meters high, so like six six. I think we, um, it's it's just me sitting there. It's for some people frightening. A physical the space presence, that I yeah. take with my yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and 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 nothing I can do about that. Really, but <laughs> it's something that I have to understand, right? That, that basically that that has an impact on some. And, and I also reflected that. You know, um, I had a group with um, three women, and one woman shared that for her it's stress to be in this group with men in there, and because of the p- p- behavior that happened at her company, that she uh, feels threatened by that. And so, while I didn't do that, it's interesting for me to to know that. Oh, yeah, that is part of the reality that you mm-hmm. kind of like have to work with, right? And basically. And um, so, yeah, a lot of things, like also um, when I get to points where I kind of like opened up emotionally and something painful, I felt, wow, I did this thing and it took for ages and I was really vulnerable. And then people said, yeah, it was a few seconds where I could see that you were kind of like touched, but then it was gone. So I said, well, interesting. So my perception is like, I opened up this big door here. Yeah, and, and it was like, a oh, tiny was, little, like a... <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> So a lot of things that make you think and that uh, also us to change, you know, to um, one thing that I looking back that helped me a lot in life to live with radical changes was again, the farm thing, you know, this, you know, since 1400 something, it's like a tree with big roots. If you know what is really important to yourself, it's very easy for me to change all the rest. So I I decided to leave Germany, go, go to the US, live there, leave my job and it didn't feel like a big thing. And it didn't can feel- you briefly,
0: Can you briefly touch on that? We're, we're, we're running We're running short of time, but can you just, because I was really interested at the very beginning when you said, because it's very unusual part of your story <coughs> that you founded a company, you left, you went to, Sil- and then you went to Silicon Valley, you went to like this like really cool, whatever upstart place, and probably where there was plenty, a lot of exciting things, like exciting people to meet, exciting things to do. And you spent six years there and then you came back and started yeah. back into your thing. Can you just briefly touch on that? Because I think that's
2: I, I still of- miss it. <laughs> yeah,
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah so um, it started out with this thing of uh, starting the company early and it felt like, yep, yeah, let's just try it out. But then a few years later, more and more people said, Hey, ah, you know, you will do this for forever. And I was, mm, no, I can't do something <laughs> completely different. And, and I kind of like saw the risk that I, end up doing something that I don't enjoy at some point in time, just because I started it. So when I was 27, I think, I, I told myself when I'm 35, I will take a trip around the world for a year and I'll do something else and then I'm free to do whatever I want to do, and um, I told everybody, my family, my dentist, my, I even gave an interview. About <laughs> I, I made it very public that this is my plan.
0: Right, because you, um, you wanted to hold yourself accountable.
2: <laughs> exactly, and and I never regretted things I did. I, I regret things I don't do, even though I want yeah. them. That's more the, the pain. Mm-hmm. And um, I turned thirty-five, I turned thirty-six, and I hadn't done it. And um, <laughs> that was indeed painful. I felt the urge that I don't want to let me down. I also had some other ideas that I want to work on. I want to start a family, and I wanted to live in the U.S. I never studied abroad. That was one of the things that regretted that I didn't basically, you know, take the opportunity as a student or something, live a year abroad. I, I just basically went fast, 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 started a company, and then, so I really um, moved on at that point in time, mm-hmm. handed over the company, and uh, moved to Silicon Valley. There we worked on a few startups, and um, and then also took over the role of the stay at home dad, while my wife after the third child kind of like uh, was working again. So I was for uh, two years was stay at home dad and the fourth child arrived and then we had to deal that. Oh we my back. <laughs> and um, so I really enjoyed that time it was an interesting reflection also like how much. And sorry, you were doing that means. in California.
0: You were you were doing this. In, I did, thing I in did California? that
2: in California. I lived in. Some, <laughs> I actually did things like nonprofit stuff in, in Brussels, and I did nonprofit mm-hmm. stuff in, in the U.S. So, like the, the preschool, I was on the board there, and uh, it was amazing. <laughs> I actually so learned a lot, and, and used some of my skills actually to as a yeah. board president there. Um, but it was also interesting for me to see that there is something missing. You know, I very much enjoyed the time with my kids when they were young. and It was an amazing yeah. time. We lived in the Presidio, so in some of the and the park. And um, yeah, yeah, it was kind it of fantastic, right? We went there this summer and it's just fantastic. But yeah. it's also something missing when you kind of like, you know, this idea of building something and building an organization. So I felt like there, there, that there is a reason why you don't want to be just that. Um, but yeah. I was blessed, right? Stay at home, dad, you know. People don't even believe you that you do that, um, but <laughs> it was it was an amazing time. What then happened was that, you know, I had a deal with my wife before she child arrived, but also my dad got sick and it felt not good to be so far away um, right. and my company. So in a way I was then like, we were, as a family, I think, as say, like, hey, like an adventure, let's go to Europe. My wife wanted to live in Europe anyway. So she made me kind of, she's American, but- she Oh, your wife was not, your
0: wife is American. You met, a, uh, it wasn't, your, you yeah, met her met in her the US. And
2: I met her at the Web 2.0 Summit in 2007 in the Palace Hotel in San Francisco, yes. So,
0: <laughs> nice, okay. Yeah,
2: kind of funny, huh? <laughs> no, and, and, but she was very, she liked Europe and she wanted to go to Europe. And so we, we took it as a big adventure, like to say, well, we don't know how long, but let's go to Europe. Let's go back. And uh, now we are here and, um, you know, we're a little more settled now with the, with the house and renovations, but but yeah, I think this this mental agility was something that was important to all of us. But
0: wait, say. Soren, what it. about the trip around the world? Where does that fit into this whole thing? We're 35, you yeah, lost, that's... I lost it. I lost more no, no, we... you, and you yeah, had all these what... kids. How could you do it? What?
2: <laughs> yeah, I tell you, you know, we, we had planned this nice trip and we were about to start and then my wife got pregnant. It was 2009 yeah. it was right when i basically moved over there and uh, we had to replan so that we squeezed the year and half a year and because the beginning of the end of the pregnancy there's something <laughs> some, you know and then we actually took a trip around the world we sailed a little bit around bora bora like we did a sailing nice. in there but um yeah it was fun it was i think you know even my wife as a pregnant uh, mother then uh, it was perfect because you don't have to work you have yeah you know, around the world that you know, some some you know <laughs> doctors thing, but you don't have stress and it was it was a great yeah. time yeah so we did that too. Uh, I wanted to again
1: actually. You've done it all, you did it all. What a good story. We're we're coming towards the end of our time, sorry. But I I have a feeling that other important things about you and like what you believe in and what you've done or are doing that you haven't had time to share because I I have a feeling there might have been stuff we talked about back in April that you're really into about you know philosophy or like I, you know, I think that if there is stuff that's like important that you've got to share, you know, we'd love you to do that because I know that I've got a like a mental note that there's something missing that's important.
2: Yeah, there was, there was actually a reflection in the TED, right? Um, it started, I Was the TED before this one? It was two years in Right, It must have been 2019, right? The last TED before that. Um, there was an interesting opener. It was kind of like two sides of, you know, the world is going to shit. It's like all these crazy things that are happening and politics and and, and then there was the um, Steven Pinker who said, you know what? All the numbers are getting better. So it's like the world is getting better. What is what is wrong? Like and and there was this intense moment at the beginning about this what is rule, what is real? Is the world getting worse or is the world getting better? And um at the end of that, I I had the chance to for a minute to share one reflection. And my reflection would be, you know, we are actually living in a very different world than before. But right now it looks the same as twenty like 10 but it's very different right? like the world is so connected now with everything we do with social media but also all the logistics and everything um that whatever happens is happening very fast at a global level and that we observe something i would describe as, as a you know rising awareness as the biggest trend in society like the awareness about things like, like global warming is like rapidly changing awareness about kind of like for example gay marriage when i was in the u.s in 2008 um, obama was running and he was making the statement you know i believe marriage is the union between a man and a woman that was 2008 and you basically had to say that in the u.s to get elected president in 2008 2012 joe biden said a thing i think yeah you know he's on your side to the lgbt community and that was an uh, uh, basically perceived as a uh, basically um, you know big problem because he might screw up the Obama's chances to get elected again. In two thousand sixteen, it, it was not possible as a Democrat to run on a on a platform to say that you know you are against gay marriage. And even now, basically, also the Republican side would not basically at least most of them not try to get kind of to that state again. So the whole world, not just the U.S. but also India, Ireland, Germany, everyone changed dramatically in not too many years. Um, Then Greta Thunberg, like, you know, everyone knew about global warming for 50 and more years, but she somehow changed the public perception of that topic as a symbol and uh, grew collective awareness. Then you had George Floyd. You know, it's not new that racism is there or police brutality, but that to see that video changed the world. Um, So what I see happening is that The most powerful thing to change something these days is not even technology. That takes a while. It is symbols. Powerful symbols have the ability to change the world overnight. It changed something like, you know, Harvey Weinstein, for example. He was powerful, but then a day later he was not because, you know, one report about him. My perception is that that will go on faster and faster, that the rate of change will go on faster and faster, and that it's usually more awareness for more things that are bad so therefore it feels so bad but right? every year feels worse than the the one before because we have more awareness of all the stuff that is screwed up at the same point in time though the world is getting better so i think that the, both sides were right right they they observed the same thing we are aware of more stuff that is broken and by getting this awareness we also move them forward uh, over time so it's maybe like a more like a Buddhist reflection. You have to first feel the pain of everyone and then to be enlightened and fix it. So that's kind of like my, my view also of media, that right now we get to the point where this, these symbols have the ability to change something. And that is maybe a good thing that we try to get the right symbols out there. There's all the other stuff, right? What about misuse of symbols? You have also bad symbols that go out there. So it's, it's not a one-way street. a powerful tool though and it will change society Hmm.
1: thank you well i think we're we're it's been a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, Kim and I think we're more or less done, aren't we? we there isn't anything else.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, Sören, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I thought your story, I, I I feel like I really connected and I've had a lot of very common things with you and, and I really connected with, like, and just, and, and you're so interesting. I mean, like, the all the stuff that you've done and then at the end, in the last five minutes, you chucked in the, you know, being a stay-at-home dad, taking over the, whatever, the, the, the head of the, the, uh, the, the yeah nursery school or whatever it was the school board and you know traveling around the road with your pregnant wife for six months i mean a crazy
2: crazy story i can recommend it actually i really (laughs) uh, we have four kids now and and it's really you can tell still this this time i have with them i can highly recommend to do something like that at least a few months or something it is good so
0: anyway thank you so much for your time we really appreciate it thank you very much
2: come on richard thank you have a great day